This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And we have a topic we want to talk about, looking at safe sleep for infants. You know, we've heard things in the past about sudden infant death syndrome. What is safe sleep? We could not have a better individual. We've got Dr. Marissa Abbey with us, who's the manager of injury prevention at Children's Health. Dr. Abbey, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you and your listeners. You know, from your point of view, especially for our parents, what should they be paying attention to to make sure that their infants are having safe sleep? Absolutely. That's a great question because sleep is something that we all do every day. Um, And so we think we know how to do it. But with babies, there are a lot of differences compared to adults. And so we really need to pay attention to those. And oftentimes, first-time parents, they're already worried about their newborn, and they may have heard that they're, you know, about to encounter some sleepless nights. Um, However, it's really important to put the baby in a safe environment and make a plan for how and where the baby is going to sleep when they come home from the hospital. And this is all important because about 32 babies die every year in Dallas County due to an being in an unsafe sleep environment. And these deaths are all preventable, so that's good news that we know how to prevent them. Hey, could I jump in real quick? Sure. Would you you state that number again? That really needs to sink in. Okay, sure. Um, Did the whole sentence? No, just, just that number, that statistic. That's an incredible number. Yes. So we know that 32 babies die every year in Dallas County in an unsafe sleep environment. And these deaths are completely preventable. And so it's important to know how to prevent them. Thank you. Wow. You know, you mentioned in your answer about parents having a plan when they bring the infant home and where they'll sleep. What can parents do to help their babies sleep not only better, but safely. Yes. I know it sounds opposite of what you want to do as a new parent, but you actually want your baby to wake up more often. Um, And this is because a lot of the risk during sleep happens because the baby's body doesn't communicate with their brain as our, our body and brain communicate. So, for example, if our foot falls asleep because we're laying on it, our body tells our brain, hey, you know, move your foot. And we do that to keep the blood flowing. But babies' brains don't work in that way because that part of their brain hasn't developed. And they have a hard time waking up in the middle of the night if they've stopped breathing. Uh, So waking up often for babies is actually a good thing. We want them to wake up every two to three hours. It's safer for them. Wow, that's something I had not known. It's better for the babies to wake up, and you want them to wake up every two to three hours. Yeah, what, what, what do you tell parents to help them wake their babies up? That's a great question. I say that we should tickle them. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 
there's some things that we can do to keep the baby, their body communicating with their brain. And one of the most important things is to keep them cool. Um, You can imagine we all live in Texas. It's, it's hot in the summer. And if you've been working in the yard or you've been out at the soccer fields all day with your kids, that heat makes you tired, drained. You feel like you don't want to do anything. And the same thing happens to your baby if they get too hot while they're sleeping. Um, If they're too hot, they get drowsy and they don't breathe as deeply. And so one of the most important things we can do is keep the babies cool uh, by not adding a lot of those fluffy blankets and, and covers. You know, to help our listeners, and especially the parents that are listening to this show, what would you say are the major risk to babies during sleep? We want babies to have enough room to breathe. So it's all about making sure that they get enough oxygen and are able to breathe well. Uh, You might have heard that it's important to put the baby to sleep on their back, and there's some reasons why. If you can see their whole face, then you know that they're getting enough air. They're able to get enough air that they need. So think about it. When you pick up a baby, little babies, their heads are floppy, and they can't hold their head up. And so if they're sleeping on their stomach or if they have a pillow next to them, they're not able to lift their head or turn it in order to get the the breathing space that they need to. So everything really revolves around the baby being able to breathe. You know, you mentioned it's good for them to be on their back. Let me step back a minute, though. Let's assume, you know, they just had a bottle and during the night they spit up. Is there a chance they could choke? Yeah, parents do uh, put their babies on the stomach just because you don't want them to choke in case they spit up. And and in fact, I think that was the norm many years ago. Um, But now we know that the risk for spitting up and choking is pretty low if babies are asleep on their back. So if you think about it, when you're lying on your back, the air that you breathe through your nose into your lungs, that, that tube is on the top. And the the tube that goes from your mouth to your stomach is on the bottom. So if your baby does happen to spit up, the spit up isn't going into the lungs, it's going back into the stomach. Well, that's good to know, and it's good for people to understand that. So the safest is to place the baby on their back. Is that correct? That's correct, on their back. So, you know, it's been a while. You know, I've got grandkids now, but I remember when my son was little, Uh, What about, you know, they get up, they cry, and you finally go, I'm just going to put the baby in the bed with me. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I know a lot of parents um, do share their bed with the baby um, and other adults, and that's probably the biggest risk factor that we see is sleeping in the same surface as an adult. And it's, it's just primarily because as adults, we love to have our soft bed and our thick pillows and all those blankets for comfort. Uh, But babies are small and they need all of that room to breathe that we talked about earlier. So the soft bed and the pillows and the stuff that we have in the bed with us actually make it harder for babies to breathe, um, almost like they're in quicksand. And so when babies sleep with these things in the bed with us, they can become smothered uh, because they can't hold their head up or move it to a place where they can get the air that they need to breathe. In fact, the majority of babies that do die um, in an unsafe sleep environment are dying before they're three months old. And it's just because they haven't developed those muscles in their neck to be able to, um, to move their head up or, or move if they need more air. 
So really making sure that they're on a firm mattress with nothing else around them is the best thing. You know, I don't, I don't mean to to probe into darkness here, but you mentioned that horrible statistic that on average 32 infants in Dallas County die every year. What was the cause of death? Did they smother? Yes, almost 75% of them, it was because they were sleeping in an adult bed with all of these extra things around. So it is um, smothering or even uh, getting stuck between the mattress and the wall and not being able to get out of that position. This is Dr. Marissa Abbey, Ph.D. Marissa Abbey, the manager of injury prevention at Children's Health. If you know somebody who is a parent who could benefit from this interview, please refer them to our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. It's on all the major podcast players. We're going to pick up on this theme of kids dying in adult beds next. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. This is such an important topic, especially for our younger parents. Our guest is Dr. Marissa Abbey, the manager of injury prevention at Children's Health. Before the break, we were talking about a statistic that is incredible of children dying in adult beds. If you know somebody who could benefit from this interview, please send them to our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. Here's Steve continuing our interview. You know, it's amazing. You just threw out another nugget of information. 75% of those deaths occurred in an adult bed. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. That in of itself should be a warning not to put your babies in bed with adults at that very young age. Exactly. At that young age, they're just not able to move their head uh, and get out of danger if they find themselves in danger. You know, no matter who you talk to in the medical profession, they're going to tell you smoking is not good for you. But I actually have heard that smoking can impact a baby's sleep. One, is that true? And can you kind of expand on that? Absolutely. It it is definitely true. And even whether you're a smoker or not smoker, uh, when you climb some stairs or you had a workout, we all have that feeling that we're out of breath. Um, And that's exactly what happens when our baby is around secondhand smoke. They have a a harder time to breathe and there's less oxygen that's able to get into their body. Um, And so that secondhand smoke just decreases the amount of air that they're able to get into their body. You know, it's amazing. That secondhand smoke can have that impact. That is just unbelievable. You know, let me ask you another question. Is there any rule or thought on diet? And I know, obviously, uh, a child may be nursing at this age. They may be uh, using a formula through a bottle. Do you have any kind of guidelines on when you feed a baby and how soon after that you put them down to sleep? Well, we know that babies are going to wake up every two to three hours to feed, you know, especially when they're young. And babies who are breastfeeding get hungrier and wake up more often because breast milk is easier to digest. Um, I know it seems contrary. You want the baby to sleep longer so that you can sleep longer as a parent. Um, but we just want to make sure that whether you're breastfeeding or bottle feeding formula, that you, they're getting the right amount so that they are waking up, you know, every few hours and keeping that signal to their brain strong. 
You know, we've talked about sleeping in a safe environment, and obviously it goes without saying, but I thought you might want to help advise our listeners. Not only do you have to worry about breathing, but you want to make sure you have proper railings so that the child does not roll and fall, correct? Yes. So all of the products that you can buy, the cribs and the pack and plays um, and the bassinets, you want to make sure that they're approved by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And that way they've tested and made sure that the railing and the sides of those products that our babies are in are safe. You know, you mentioned it's good for, for the infants to wake up every two to three hours. You explained that. But what if your infant continues to wake up much more than that and apparently has a lot of gas. Is there a point where you need to consult your pediatrician? Sure. I'm definitely not a medical doctor, um, but if it seems like they're waking up a lot more frequently than two hours and uncomfortable, I would definitely contact a pediatrician to make sure that there isn't any other um, digestive issues going on. Well, I know Dr. Abby Thomas has got grandkids like me, so I am confident he's got a few questions. You are absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a couple of things. Boy, this has been amazing information, Dr. Abby. Thank you for this. This has been great. I wanted to clarify because I know what parents are thinking out there. You said to wake them up every about three hours or so. Up to what age? Well, I think that can be pretty specific to the baby. I know, I don't know that there's a standard age. I would say around two to three months, they start to sleep longer and longer stretches of time. And that's perfectly okay. We know the risk of dying in their sleep goes down significantly after the third month. So it's really those first three months that's the most critical. That's amazing. Because what do parents say? Exhausted parents, right? Finally, the baby is asleep. And what you're saying is, yeah, for a very short time, mom and dad, y'all rotate, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. And, you know, if the baby sleeps four hours and you're you're excited and you're sleeping, that's fine. It's perfectly normal. Um, You just want to make sure that they're they're cool, they're in a place where they can get plenty of air, and that there's not anything in the, the sleeping environment with them that could suffocate them. Now, I do have grandkids. It's my son's children, and he is a biomedical engineer and runs the biomedical engineering department at one of the hospitals here in the Metroplex. So listen to what they've done. (laughs) This is probably a little over the top. But when you talk about, you know, like you were saying, just make sure they're not in bed with you and you can see their face and all this. Well, first thing he has is an O2 SAP monitor, an oxygen saturation (laughs) monitor, and a heart rate monitor that goes on their heel. And that will wake the dead. I mean, basically, <laughs> if they're a sound asleep and that thing goes off, it shakes the house. And then a camera that they can carry the monitor around with them from room to room in the house. So they're watching the baby while it's asleep as well. So those two things are the physical body monitoring. Then there's this system, and I can't remember the name of it. You might know, but it's a bed that kind of rotates back and forth. And part of the system is that they put the girls in this almost like mummy tight kind of thing. And now I get it because the way it wraps up is their arms are down to their sides. They had to swaddle. Yes. 
Yes. And oh my gosh, has it just worked. That whole system has worked beautifully. Well, it sounds like they've gone above and beyond and really keeping her safe. Well, and the other thing where it all really kind of paid off in droves and dividends was about, what, two months ago, the whole family got COVID, including Mm -hmm. the, the little baby who was only three months at the time. So for them to fight it themselves and then be monitoring the baby, I'll tell you, this just made it so much easier because every moment that that little girl was asleep, she had that monitor on, and it was that was huge. Yeah, that is huge. I'm glad that she's doing, everybody's doing well. Another thing they've done is they got a hold of a book. It's written by a couple of nurse practitioners, I believe, but it talks about just putting the kids on a schedule. And I think the schedule kicks in probably about the time here that you're talking about it, you know, that we're falling (laughs) off from that immediate danger. It's probably about six to eight weeks out that they start this schedule. But keeping the kids on a regimented schedule where things are predictable for their little bodies to get settled into a routine seems to make a lot of difference. I mean, I'm not a sleep expert or a sleep physician, but just in my own personal experience with my child, getting him on a sleep schedule around eight weeks was amazing um, and just helped everybody in the household know what was happening and and when we were going to be able to get some sleep. It wasn't so chaotic. Exactly. It it makes it better for the kids and the parents because you just settle into this routine and you just do it every day for the next 32 years, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there's an awareness issue that when 32 children, I'm just thinking of, you know, to me, that's a really big number, maybe not so much in a town of 5 million people, but still 32 lives ended in the, scary. in the very beginning. I mean, that's a big deal. Do we need more awareness out there? I think we need more awareness. And unfortunately, when we do a lot of the safe sleep education, it's at the hospital right after mom's delivered. And it's there's just too much going on at that time. And so I, I think we need earlier education, you know, before the baby comes. Um, and helping parents have a realistic expectation that, yeah, you are only going to get two to three hours of sleep at a time. Um, so it's good to have a plan before you get home of where the baby's going to sleep and how you're going to be able to support yourself when you're tired. But it's going to, you'll get through it and it won't be forever. It's just for a few months. You've given so much information to our listeners. Let me ask you this What final thoughts, recommendations, would you like to share with our listeners, especially parents, about infants sleeping safely? Absolutely. Uh, I think our number one is to know that this critical period for them will pass. Um, And it it can be sleepless nights for a few months, but it'll pass and uh, and the babies will be a lot safer. Um, You want to make sure that you protect them Every sleep that they have, whether it's nap time at your at grandma and grandpa's house um, and at night, as long as you can see their whole face while they're sleeping, they're not in a soft bed with us with blankets and pillows, that those are the most important things. This has been Dr. Marissa Abbey from Children's Health. And an extra special thanks to Children's Health for making this kind of valuable information available to our community. And again, that interview is available on our podcast if you'd like to share it with somebody else. 
Now, pivot time, we're going to talk about the number one killer in the world next on the human side of healthcare. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And today we want to talk about heart failure. We've talked about other heart conditions, but we haven't focused on heart failure. And we're delighted to have with us today Dr. Yuvad Youssef, who is a heart failure and transplant cardiologist at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me over. Many of our listeners may not know exactly what heart failure is. To set the stage, what in your mind is the best way to describe heart failure? It's a progressive worsening of heart function. Over time, because of multiple reasons, heart muscle starts weakening that leads to decreased oxygen flow, decreased blood flow throughout the body. So in basic words, heart can't keep up with its workload. So how does it overall affect our bodies when we aren't getting that oxygen? So Steve, it's uh, it's like if your body is deprived of oxygen, you, you're eventually going to start, the whole system is going to start feeling it in terms of your kidneys will start shutting down on you. The lungs will not be so happy. You will become short of breath. It's It affects almost every system of your body. Uh, and that's the reason it's, it's usually, majority of the time, it's a slow, progressive phenomena. You know, you've done a great job describing what it is. Now let's talk numbers. How prevalent is heart failure in the U.S.? Uh, good question. And, you know, it's something which, unfortunately, despite of all the advances in medicine, the number is constantly going up. And I can tell you from the CDC data, almost uh, 6.2 million. In fact, it's a little more now of uh, folks, adult patients or adult folks in the United States have a diagnosis of heart failure. Just in like 2018, almost 14% of death certificates have a diagnosis of heart failure. Now it could be for multiple type of heart failures, but 14% is a significant number significant death rate because of the heart failure itself. And from 2012, and again, keep in mind, we are in almost at the end of 2022, almost $31 billion got spent on heart failure. So it's, it's, uh, it's a big problem that we are dealing with. Um, again, therapies are getting better, but the number unfortunately still is rising up. You know, with that increase, does it affect Men or women are equal? So very interesting question. Um, men, you know, they tend to have more heart failure. But interestingly, the mortality rate amongst female patients is more. So in general, males have more heart failure versus females. But mortality rate among females is more as compared to the males. What about age? Generally, what is the average age of patients that experience heart failure? So 
really no set age it can it can affect you at any age some people are born that way like it's a it's a congenital thing for them but in general as we age more our chances of getting heart failure becomes higher because of all the other risk factors including hypertension diabetes you know multiple other things so as we age our chances of getting heart failure are going to be higher versus somebody young but things can happen at any age so that's that's where the importance of you know not ignoring the symptoms and talking to your physician is is really important if your parents experienced or one of your parents or even a sibling has heart failure is it hereditary it could very well be uh, the genetic thing and if your parent or if anyone's there is there is a history family history of heart failure um it's highly recommended to talk to your physician and get yourself checked out you know usually whenever we see somebody uh with the diagnosis of heart failure um it's it's uh, it's highly encouraged that there should be screening for at least three family lines so genetics as we are moving forward in in you know in terms of knowing the disease more we we know uh for a fact that you know genetics plays a very important role very important role in terms of heart failure so can other heart conditions i'll just pick afib can it trigger heart failure it can very well be and in fact afib in particular is one of the very important causes for heart failure in fact it's a very important cause for mortality in heart failure so that's that's one of you know the biggest things we really if somebody with a history of atrial fibrillation or irregular heartbeat it really affects your heart function overall it affects your mortality it affects the survival so something to be very careful about something that we should pay very special attention to it you know to our listeners out there that are hearing this i'm sure they're asking well what are some of the signs what are the symptoms what are red flags that trigger heart failure again a good question and i'll i'll tell you majority of the time it's a shortness of breath uh swelling in the lower extremities your feet getting swollen fatigue so shortness of breath and fatigue and uh, swelling in your lower extremities these are these are the, some of the very common signs but then at the same time inability to walk longer distances like i was able to walk this much before and now i can't do that you know some patients um, they wake up middle of the night uh, to catch up on air uh, that's that's another very very significant sign of heart failure inability to lay flat like i cannot lay flat so shortness of breath fatigue tiredness all the time you know some patients will have cough this persistent cough that's that's something you know that's another sign that uh, that you can uh, you can have underlying heart failure uh, these these are some of the major things that we look for what are some of the treatments available for people that have heart failure see the good thing is over the period of you know last uh, decade um the treatment has revolutionized so much uh, you know majority of the time fortunately medications are the first line therapy and the medicines themselves are able to 
improve your symptoms, improve your overall heart function, improve the general body functioning. So there, there are a few medicines, you know, three to four medicines that really help strengthen up your heart muscle, really help pump it better. And those treatments are, are, are way different even in like last 10 years versus, versus what we used to do 10 years ago. So science is progressing, new treatments are available, medicines are becoming way more smarter. Uh, and I, I think overall in general, we have made much improvement uh, in the field of heart failure as compared to what we were, as I said, like even 10 years ago. You know, if a patient presented themselves to you and they were experiencing some of the things you described, shortness of breath, or let's say they're having swelling, especially in their feet. Is there any test like a blood test that you can take that will say, hey, this kind of helps confirm this potentially is heart failure? Absolutely. And um, again, the good thing is these tests are readily available. You know, there are some blood tests uh, that, that can be done and the results can be available like within 30 minutes to one hour, depending on where you are. And uh, we have these facilities available throughout the Texas Health System. So let's assume you diagnosed a patient is saying, you know, I think you, you've got heart failure. Have you seen cases where they change their lifestyle and actually reverse it? It, it happens very frequently. You know, lifestyle modifications is the number one therapy, number one thing, or the first thing I should say, where where everything starts with the patient itself. And again, fortunately, with the combination of medicines and an active participation from the patients themselves, we are able to see a lot of this gets reversed back to normal. And patients go back to their normal lifestyle you know, whatever they were doing before all of this started. So it all really depends on what caused it. And then, you know, how early we can get to the bottom of it to start the process of reversing. Now, very rarely, you know, sometimes even if it doesn't happen, then at least the therapies that are available, you know, what we call the advanced heart failure therapies, you know, they, the, the outcome is very different if it gets started early on. So for our listeners out there that aren't experiencing any symptoms, have no reason to believe they have heart failure, what is your advice on proactive things they can do that will minimize, hopefully, heart failure in the future? So, Steve, one of the biggest reasons throughout the United States, in fact, throughout throughout the world, I can say, for developing heart failure is hypertension. High blood pressure is the number one cause that takes you or that causes heart failure. I think, you know, proactively watching your blood pressure, like a routine physical exercise, watching your salt intake, watching what you eat, these are the basic things. These are the very basic things. And as we age, and as we move forward in our life, you know, we need to be a little bit more careful in regular preventive screening, you know, screening for high blood pressure, screening for diabetes mellitus, those sort of basic health-related things. I think they, they are the things I would look for. We're talking with Dr. Yavad Yusuf, a cardiologist at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas. 
Because heart disease claims so many lives unnecessarily, we're going to continue this conversation in the next segment, talking about the number two cause of heart disease, and what about congestive heart failure? Stay with us. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. We're picking up and carrying on with our interview with Dr. Yavad Youssef, cardiologist at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. This is on our podcast and YouTube channel, too, The Human Side of Healthcare. Before the break, we left off talking about diabetes as a contributing factor to heart disease. You know, you mentioned in your answer diabetes. So I take from that diabetes can contribute to heart failure, correct? It absolutely does. In fact, it's number two cause after hypertension for causing heart failure. So much happens in science and for the good, where there are breakthroughs, there's advancements, there's cutting edge. Heart failure, as you look to the future, what's on the horizon related to treatment? So future looks very bright. Uh, you know, I have been fortunate enough to be part of some of these projects. You know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, some of the newer medicines and the science has progressed and some of the therapies that were available that were not available to us even five or six years ago, and now they're part of the therapy, they're part of the necessary therapy which increases your survival like more than 50%, and that's a significant number in size. You know, medicines are playing an extremely important role. And in a very small percentage of patients where medicines don't, don't respond or patients don't respond to those therapies, the advanced therapies in terms of cardiac transplants, artificial hearts, heart pumps, they all make you live better. They all make you live longer. So therapies and science have improved significantly, and they are available. You know, we talked a little bit and touched on AFib and how it potentially, if not taken care of, could lead to heart failure. What about someone who maybe had a heart blockage, and let's say they had a stent put in, and they went through the cardiac rehab? Are they more prone to have heart failure than someone who hasn't? had that issue? In general, the answer is yes. You know, heart blockages or coronary artery disease, as we call it, it's, it's one of the very common, in fact, one of the biggest reasons for weak heart muscle or heart failure, as we say that. You know, historically, the, the folks will develop heart failure early on. Now, with all the advances in science and the stents and our ability to manage the blockages well, we tend to see heart failure happening or appearing a little late. So definitely there is, there is this component of blockage or heart blockages playing an important role towards weakening of the heart muscle. Clearly, the earlier we fix these problems, whether it's blockage in the heart, whether it's you know any kind of valve-related issues, the heart valve blockages, or atrial fibrillation, the outcomes are much better. And I, I think that our uh, listeners should know that you know these are the therapies that are available, they are accessible, and uh, the earlier we, we reach out, the earlier we address those, 
the outcome is way more better. You know, when I introduced you, part of your title was transplant cardiologist. So I have to ask this question. If you have a patient that's in severe heart failure, is a heart transplant an option? It is absolutely an option, and the outcome is way much better. Outcome is very promising. The only thing that we need to be careful about as a physician for us is very important. You know, we get to those patients early on. So I will always tell my patients, it's something that you should ask your physician, you should ask your cardiologist, that is this an option for me? There is the early we get to that path, and that does not necessarily mean that, you know, the patients will go that route or will go that track. It's, a, it's an advanced procedure. It's a complex procedure. And we want to do what's best for the patient, but it's absolutely an option, and it's a very good option. Dr. Yusuf, this is Thomas. I would like to explore this terminology around heart failure, because obviously that sounds like, oh, no, I'm going to have a heart attack. That doesn't describe what heart failure is, does it? It's not. Let me put it this way. Heart failure, it's more sort of a historic word. And in in the field of heart failure, we tend to shy away from this word failure. It's more sort of uh, weakness. It's, it's, a, it's a disease that almost entirely involves your entire body. You know, the word failure sounds a little bit negative, if I can say, but it's, it's a more sort of weakening of the heart muscle over a progressive, over a you know, long a period of time. And in fact, it's interesting, there are, there are some sorts of heart failure, and again, I'm using the word failure myself, where it's really not the the weakening of the heart muscle it's sometimes your heart was muscle become too strong and it's difficult to explain how that works and that can lead to symptoms of the heart failure or cardiomyopathy would be a more better word for for those symptoms and then what about the term congestive heart failure so it leads to the same discussion we had earlier it's a progressive process, heart muscle over time, for several reasons, you know, things that we discussed, becomes weak, and its inability to pump the blood forward will make the blood kind of stand in the lungs or causing more congestion in the lungs. Keep in mind, our lungs are connected with our heart, and it's a full cycle. The whole pump has to go through the entire cycle of it. So if it's not moving forward, it's going to make it go backward. And that's where the symptoms of shortness of breath comes from. You and Steve talked about medicine as some of the treatment line for this. What about exercise? Exercise definitely plays a very important role. You know, it kind of tunes or makes your heart stronger. It pumps better. And again, I'm using some very simple words for our listeners to understand it better. Exercise makes your chances of having blood pressure or high blood pressure less, which in turn leads to less incidence of heart failure. Same is the case with exercise. More exercise or more athletic you are, less chances of being diabetic, 
less chances of having heart problems. I know we have a lot of parents listening who have teenagers who play sports, and often that means practicing in the Texas heat. And sometimes Mm -hmm. teenagers have problems with their heart, related to their heart. Thoughts on our teenagers and our kids and keeping them safe, especially out there in that hot weather. So moderation is the key. You know, Texas, Texas weather, it's it's really hot. Uh, I recently moved to Texas, and this was my first summer in Texas and I can I can I can see how hot it becomes, especially like last summers. I think the key or the message would be keep yourself well hydrated. Very well hydrated. You know, I won't tell the teenagers not to exercise and not to enjoy the sports, but moderation is the key. And as long as you are uh, keeping yourself hydrated and you know the limits, uh, I think it should be all good. Let's wrap this up with asking the question that I think all of us probably deal with in one way or another, and that is the battle of the bulge. So even being overweight and maybe not even obese, does that play a factor? It's absolutely one of, you know, one of the very, very, very common reasons. And again, our human body works in kind of, you know, series connection. You're overweight, your chances of having high blood pressure are higher your chances of being diabetic are higher, your chances of having underlying blockages are higher. These are the most important reasons for having heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease, and they're all directly linked with being overweight. So cannot emphasize more, if anything, watch your weight, daily exercise. This could be really a game changer in long term. Yeah, and the paybacks are steep, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Yvad Youssef, cardiologist from Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. Thanks for that great information. Steve? Thanks, Thomas. You know, next week begins spring break for many parts of the Metroplex. We hope your kids have fun, but also stay safe. Join us next week for the human side of healthcare.